Turn with me, please, in your Bibles to John chapter 17. John 17. In continuing in our study of the Gospel of John, and now specifically our consideration of our Lord's high priestly prayer as recorded in the 17th chapter, we come this morning to focus on the first of the petitions of the Lord Jesus to his Father in this wonderful and holy and precious prayer. And the petition upon which we focus this morning is expressed in the first verse. If you'll please read with me as I read John 17, beginning with verse 1 and ending with verse 5. These things spoke Jesus, and lifting up his eyes to heaven, he said, Father, the hour is come. Glorify thy Son, that the Son may glorify thee, even as thou gavest him authority over all flesh, that to all whom thou hast given him he should give eternal life. And this is life eternal, that they should know thee, the only true God, and him whom thou didst send, even Jesus Christ. I glorified thee on the earth, having accomplished the work which thou hast given me to do. And now, Father, glorify thou me with thine own self, with the glory which I had with thee before the world was. Please again join me as we bow together to seek the grace and the help of the Lord in the preaching of his word. Our Father, the enemy of our souls would rejoice if he were able to keep any of us from so hearing your word that our hearts are changed and tuned to your will. It is his commitment to keep us from knowing you and from having eternal life. It is his hatred against all that which you would do to glorify yourself and your son. And so we would ask, even this morning as he has already acted upon us and acted against us and now strives with our hearts, using all manner of distractions and pulls and tugs, that you would rise up now in mercy, and that you would pour out your Holy Spirit upon the unworthy, him who speaks your word and those who hear it, and that you, for the sake of your Son, would today, in the preaching of his word, glorify him, that in his glory you may be glorified. Lord, give us help. Do not leave us to ourselves. We seek not our glory, but the glory of our Savior. O oh God, give your spirit. O oh God, have mercy on us. 
Help us and awaken us to righteousness. Hear our prayer as we offer it in Jesus' name. Amen. This morning I want to concentrate on the subject of the glory of God in His Son. Last time we considered that the highest goal and end of all of our Lord Jesus' activity and thought and prayer was that His Father be glorified. And we draw several, drew several conclusions from that, especially that we ourselves ought so to live as to do everything we do to the glory of God. We saw last week that that was the primary focus and concern of Christ. It was the main motive behind everything he did, that his Father be glorified. And even here in his request that the Father glorify himself, his purpose was that in his own glorification, he might in turn glorify his God and Father. Now this morning I want to concentrate with you on the other half, the first part of this twofold petition, glorify thy Son. And see how that in glorifying his Son, the Lord God glorifies himself and gets glory to himself. I want to concentrate with you on the glory of the Son, the meaning of glorifying the Son, the means by which the Father glorified and glorifies the Son, and then out of that discuss this whole matter of eternal life, what it means and some of the applications that apply to us this morning in this place. Now I've noticed in the preparation for preaching in the morning Sunday school hour and in our singing that you're a little bit under the weather today. I've noticed that some of you are having a hard time staying awake. There's a dullness in the amens. There's a quietness among us that bespeaks a hot October, I'm sure, and uh, many distractions. And so I want you to strive together with me in this hour to overcome those natural distractions and labor with me in the preaching of the gospel. Much grace is needed. We are preaching things that the Church of Christ is familiar with. We are preaching things you've heard, many of you. You've heard them more than once. But I fear that some of you have not heard them. Some among us do not know these things, and we want you to, to know them. I also fear that some who've heard them may assume that because we know them and are familiar with them, they're not worthy of our utmost diligence in hearing this morning. Nothing can be further from the truth. I trust that you cannot speak of eternal life and the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ without thinking that it commands every fiber of your attention and you're overcoming whatever the distractions and the cares are that keep you from rendering to God a proper heeding of his word. So help me as I preach by hearing aggressively and even by praying, even as you hear. First of all, let us simply state the means whereby the Father is to be glorified. The Lord has asked the Father to glorify him. And he is saying, glorify thy Son that the Father may be glorified, that you may be glorified. And in that request we see the means by which the Father is to be glorified. That is, by glorifying the Son. The Father is magnified and honored and praised, understood, comprehended, seen, and made to be loved by means of the glory of His Son. 
Now you know that the essential meaning of this word glory in the Bible is to make manifest in all its radiance and beauty, to magnify and expose and to expound all the holy attributes and the character and the will of God. To glorify God is to expose him to our view, to make us to see him in his presence, in his radiance, in his beauty, in all those things that make him God, as much as flesh can see such things and live. And so in the glorifying of his Son, the Lord is exposing and expounding to us the essence of who his Son is and what his Son does and the significance of what his Son does. Let us then first consider the meaning of glorifying the Son. What do we mean when we speak of glorifying the Son? And in order to do that, I want us to look at a couple of passages of Scripture and then try to concentrate on the central essence of the glorifying of Christ in the Gospel. Turn with me first to John chapter 7, verse 39. John 7, 39. Now we'll read verse 37 and 38 as well. The Lord Jesus, on the last day of the feast, stood and cried, in verse 37, saying, If any man thirst, let him come unto me and drink. He that believes on me, as the Scripture has said, from within him shall flow rivers of living water. But this spake he of the Spirit, which they that believed on him were to receive. For the Spirit was not yet given. Literally, the Spirit was not yet, but that doesn't mean he didn't exist. He was not yet poured out upon the church. Why? Because Jesus was not yet glorified. Christ in all the manifestation and radiance of his identity as the God-man and as the mediator between God and man and as the only Savior of men had not been so glorified. He had not yet been seen as he has got to be seen in the gospel. Therefore, the Spirit had not been poured out. And he spoke here of the Spirit which would be given to faith to those that believe upon Christ According to the scripture, God would give his spirit. And he spoke of the spirit that they were after to receive when he was glorified. Then turn to chapter 12 of John's gospel. Verse 16. John 12, 16. You know about this passage during the feast of the Passover when the Lord came into Jerusalem in what is called the triumphant or triumphal entry. And in verse uh, 14, the Lord having found a young ass set thereon, as it is written, and he quotes from Zechariah chapter 9 regarding Messiah coming into Jerusalem sitting on an ass's coat. Then in verse 16, we read, These things understood not his disciples at the first. 
They didn't understand the fulfillment of Zechariah's prophecy of King Jesus, Messiah, riding in a colt into Jerusalem. They did not connect that Old Testament prophecy with this individual that day. They didn't understand them. But when Jesus was glorified, then remembered they that these things were written of him and that they had done these things unto him. Someone asked me after Sunday school this morning, how can people be so, see these words in the, in the prophets and see them even explained? How can they read? How can the Jewish nation read of the salvation of the Gentiles and not see it and understand it? How can they be so sick? And the Bible answers that question in the, in the terms of spiritual blindness. They're blind. They see, but they don't see. They hear, but they don't hear. They hear the language explained, but they don't comprehend with their heart. Spiritual blindness is a frustrating thing to confront. You can say it, you can draw a map, you can point to the person of God himself, and they don't see it. They can't see it. If you've ever attempted to give witness, verbal witness, and to plead with the souls of individuals who are darkened in their sins, and you've seen that they can think they even understand you, and you know they don't have the faintest idea what you're talking about. You can use the same language, and you know you're not talking in the same world. You're in different cosmoses. You've seen that blindness. It's so blind that they think they can see, and they don't know they're blind. Well, so it is. The apostles did not understand that the things from Zechariah applied to Jesus. They did not understand that they spoke of his sufferings. They did not understand that they spoke of his glory. They did not understand that he was king, the king of kings and lord of lords, the branch, the root of Jesse, the rod of Jesse, the Messiah. But after he was glorified, now these are men, remember, that saw him, walked with him, heard him, witnessed his miracles, thought they comprehended his teaching, but did not see it in all of what it meant until he was glorified. Then, when the Spirit came, which we read about in John 14, 15, and 16, from the throne upon which Christ had been recently seated, the Spirit poured out upon them. Then he led them into all truth. Then they saw, because Christ was glorified. And it is the Spirit that glorifies Christ for he testifies of Christ. It is the Spirit's work to show us Christ. Not Christ in the flesh. We used to know Christ in the flesh, Paul says. But now we know him not that way any longer. But we know him in a different fashion. We know him in the Spirit. We know the significance of who Jesus is. Brethren, nothing more painful. Nothing more grievous. Nothing more belaboring to the heart of a saint than to live in a generation who are familiar with the name of Jesus, who will speak his name even in the context of religion, but know nothing about who he really is and why he came and what he is as the Son of God and the Savior of the world. To hear them quote Jesus from the Bible without understanding the significance of his saving efficacy, breaks the heart of every saint. One of the first griefs I had as a 12-year-old Christian was to hear people quoting hymns 
and songs and scripture verses and speaking the name of Jesus without ever referring to him as a deliverer from their personal sins. Without ever seeing him as a savior from real sin. They spoke of him as a good teacher, as a wonderful man, as a healer, as a prophet, as all kinds of things except the very thing for which he came into the world to accomplish. And it breaks the heart of the simplest saint to see in the heart that they don't see. Christ was not yet glorified, so they couldn't see. Now in chapter 17 then, in verse 5, he explains something of the significance and essence and nature of the glory about which he is praying when he says, Now, Father, in verse 5, Glorify thou me with thine own self with the glory which I had with thee before the world was. He is beseeching his Father to glorify him. We have seen that he had not yet been glorified. And so from those we can gather some idea of what the meaning of his glory is. But let me simply summarize it by saying this. To glorify Christ in the way he meant it when he prayed this prayer is to exalt him to the position of universal supremacy where all the creation may see his power as God, his perfect righteousness, and his graciousness and saving efficacy. Exalting Christ to the position of universal supremacy. Exalting Christ to the position of universal supremacy. Glorify thou me with the glory that I had with thee before the world was. What was the glory that he had with God before the world was? The first chapter and the first verse of this gospel tells us. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God, and all things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. We had another visit yesterday from the Jehovah's Witnesses. There's, it's apparently another campaign season, and some of them, no doubt, in pairs will come to your house. I tell you, if you want to waste any time speaking at all, waste no time debating simply declare to them that in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and the Word became flesh, and that Word, God, dwelt among us as man, and now again is in his full glory as God and man. And if they don't want to hear that, bye. And my statement to them yesterday was, I don't have time today to debate with you. I don't need to hear it. I've got things to do. They said, we're not here to debate. I closed the door. In other words, the first thing I said they argued with. I don't want to argue. We're not going to argue. Why are you arguing? Because they have an agenda. And at the root of that agenda is to dismantle and undermine and 
displaced the Lord Jesus Christ from his position of, a, of ultimate universal supremacy as God. Glorify me now. In other words, show the world who thinks I'm simply a little Palestinian Jew with a few works of magic and a bit of interesting philosophy. Show them who I really am by glorifying me with the glory I had before they ever came on the scene, with, with thee before the foundation of the world. The exalting of Christ to the position of universal supremacy. Now note verse 2 of John 17. Even as you gave him authority over all flesh. You see, the Father had placed, as we know, into the hands of his Son, the authority of everything. Over all flesh means all men. All rational creation on the earth. And Christ, as the God-man, holds within his hand the authority over all of the creatures. Now, he had that, but the world didn't know that he had that. And so he's asking the Father to glorify him according to the authority that he had, and let the world see it. Exalting Christ to the position of supreme, universal supremacy, where all the creation may see his power as God. And where all the creation may see his perfect righteousness. You're not going to know him as a savior from sin and a savior of sinners unless you know him as the sinless one, as the sinless God-man. And a part of the magnification and the glorification and the exposition of Christ is the view of Christ as the only man who ever walked on this planet without sin. The only man who ever lived in this world without sin. Glorify thou me by showing the world sinlessness in me. The sin bearer must be a lamb without blemish. You see, they, they looked in, out their flocks and they found their blemishless lambs every season of sacrifice and they sacrificed their lambs without blemish. But they did not understand what John the Baptist meant when he said, Behold, the Lamb of God which taketh away the sin of the world. How would they see him as the Lamb, the Lamb without blemish, who alone could bear their sins? God had to show him to be such. God must glorify him. And so the exalting of Christ to the position of universal supremacy where all the creation may see his power as God, his perfect righteousness, his graciousness and saving efficacy. Who is Christ? He is not the little baby in a barn evoking sympathy and sentimentality from the world. There is that, but that's not the essence of what he is. There is that sweet fragrance around babyhood, but he did not stay there. He grew into manhood. He put away childish things. And the great glory of Christ is not that as a, of a baby, but that of the, as the God-man who saves sinners. Thou shalt call this little baby's name Jesus, for it is he that will save his people from their sins. The world could not see it, and the blind world today does not see it. But Christ's prayer was and is that the Father may glorify 
him as gracious in coming to save sinners and as efficacious in accomplishing their salvation. Notice again in verse 4, I glorified thee on the earth, having accomplished the work which thou hast given me to do. What was the work which the Father gave his Son to do upon the earth? The work was this. This is the will of him that sent me, that to all whom he's given me, I would give eternal life. This is the will of my Father, that to all he's given me, I will give eternal life. All that the Father has given me will come to me, and all that come to me I will in no wise cast out, but I will raise them up at the last day. In other words, he came into the world effectively and essentially to save poor sinners whom the Father has given him from eternity to save. And we need to see him. If we have not seen his power to save, his efficacy in saving when he does attempt to save, we've not seen him in his glory. We don't know him as he really is. May I translate for you. Any Jesus that wants to save, tries to save, strives to save, and fails to save is not the Jesus of the Bible. Any Jesus that stands back hoping sinners will accommodate the vacancy in heaven is not the Jesus of the Bible. Any Jesus frustrated by his efforts that have proven futile because of sins of men, any Jesus whose will is thwarted by the free will of man is not the Jesus of the Bible. Glorify me so that the world may see that when I set out to save, I save. Christ is not glorified when he tries to save you and can't save you. No one will ever be in heaven who is there because he helped the Lord save him. And no one will ever be in hell whom the Lord intended, purposed, and tried to save. There will be nobody in hell where the Lord Jesus in heaven will have to say, I did my best and couldn't do it. Now we're well aware of what makes us tremble when we think of the implications of statements like that. And I tell you, if you believe the things I just said, it's going to separate you from the majority of Christendom. You might as well face that. You can't have it both ways. You can pretend that you can, but you can't. And if the implications of that are worked out in your life and your witness and the way you think and the way you pray and the way you explain the Bible to your friends who call themselves Christians, you're going to have trouble getting approval from most professing Christians in your generation. So you better make sure you really believe those things. You have, as a member of this church, agreed substantially with the 1689 London Baptist Confession of Faith. Now that's more than just a way to get into the church so you're willing to agree even though you may not even understand it that's not what we're asking we're not asking for you to rubber stamp something you don't agree with we're asking you to agree with it because we're convinced it's right and it's biblical and it's substance but if you do agree with it you must face the consequences you are a rare bird in this generation I personally believe you would have been a rare bird in any generation you are in the minority you're among a remnant and you will find enemies in the Christian camp opposed to you and your declaration of what I just said. Now I would declare to you who are guests in this place, who live among us in this area and for whom this church is an option, 
Uh, you're here not just as an out-of-time visitor, but you could well join this church at some point, and it's something that you may have thought about. I tell you, we're not pretending. If you join us, you're going to limit your sphere of Christian fellowship by virtue of that doing, of doing it. Not because that's what we want. We don't want you to have an attitude that desires that and promotes it and tries to limit it. That's not the point I'm making. But if you join us with a whole heart and you confess what we confess from the heart, you're going to find it increasingly difficult to get through to some other so-called Christians who don't like what we believe. You're going to find them being polite but avoiding certain conversations. You're going to find that in order to have a decent conversation with them, you're going to have to avoid the things that are most dear and precious to us. You're going to find that many of your family members, whom you deeply long to be Christians, you want to believe they know God, you hope they do, and you're willing to give all sorts of the benefit of the doubt to them, they're not going to want to talk about these kinds of things. It makes them uncomfortable. Why does it make them uncomfortable? Because it puts the essence and the completion and the thorough parts of all their salvation in the hands of God and God alone. They are utterly helpless to save themselves. That's a frightening place to be. But I tell you this. It's a simple choice between two things. You either retain to yourself some of the ability to save yourself and therefore rest partly on you to save you. Or you lose your pride and you cast all of yourself on the mercy and the power and the grace of God in Christ and be content with that. You take your choice. I, for one, think it irrational to lean at all on myself. I know me too well to know that I could depend on any part of me ever to get me to glory. I'm happy and thrilled that I know these rare and unloved doctrines. I'm glad I believe them. I'm proud of the confession. I'm unashamed of it. And I will preach it. And if you can show me in my Bible where I'm wrong, I'll change. But dear brethren, it's going to be a hard thing for you to do. I can say with the apostle, I am persuaded that my salvation is all in the hands of God. And wouldn't you rather it be there than in your hands? Do you see the essence of the issue? It's the question about who you want to be God. And it makes you uncomfortable when there's a thought that you can't be God. You get a little uneasy and insecure when you don't have control. And I tell you, you don't have control. Though you may deceive yourself the rest of your life that you do, you do not. You can whistle in the dark about it, but God sits on the throne and Christ rules. So his saving efficacy, that those whom he intends to save, he saves, is a part of glorifying him. That the whole creation can see him not simply as a beggar hoping some folks will join him in his movement, but as the God-man who saves all the Father has given him. You see what he says here, verse 2, in the second clause? that to all whom thou hast given him, he should give eternal life. That's the way he glorifies God. That is where his glory is, that he succeeds in the mission for which he was sent. Exalting Christ to the position of universal supremacy, where all the creation may see his power as God, his perfect righteousness, his graciousness and saving efficacy. We may ask the question, who is it? upon the throne now in heaven. Who is that lamb upon the throne? Well, in biblical terminology, he's three things. He is God's prophet. 
He's not one of God's prophets. He is God's prophet. As Simon Peter rightly said in John chapter 6, when the Lord looked at the apostles and said, Are you, along with the rest of the multitude, going to go away? And remember, the reason the multitude left was his declaration that you cannot come unless the Father draw you. His declaration of sovereign grace was what offended the multitude and lost him his followers. You notice that. He looks at the apostles and says, Will you too go away? What was Peter's rightful response? Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the word of eternal life. Eternal life comes to us in the word of God's prophet. He sits on the throne as the truth and the teller of the truth. And all those who are truly his servants, along with the Apostle Paul, confess we can do nothing against the truth, but only for it. Because we preach the truth as it is in Jesus. He is the prophet. He's also the king. He has authority over all flesh. He's in the position in which he is able to punish the wicked. He is able to protect the righteous. He is able to provide all our needs. He is able to save to the uttermost those to come to God by him. He knows how to turn the heart of your rebellious relatives. He knows how to break the pride of a king. He knows how to lead an assassination and make it successful and depose rulers. He knows how to start wars and end them. He knows how to bring calamity and famine and how to cure it and correct it. He knows how to stop the rain and he knows how to release the windows of heaven. He is in the position where he knows how and he has the authority when he wants to to do it. The Lord Jesus Christ sits as King of kings and Lord of lords. He is the one directing the affairs of history this morning, dear brethren. I find great comfort in that. I need great comfort. I can't listen to a broadcast on the radio of news or on the television or one of these magazine shows without getting grieved and feeling the pains of, of a twittering heart and wondering what's going to fall apart next. When I turn on my pre-7 o'clock news on Sunday morning to find that there's a crisis that's developed that may need to be addressed in the pulpit on Sunday and hear somebody expounding the virtue of taxpayers supporting perversion in art and doing it in the name of the First Amendment but would never allow me to be paid by this government to preach and to express myself. It makes me grieve and yet then I find there's a word of the scripture that tells me Christ is directing history to his purpose end. He's putting into the mouths of the false prophets the things they're saying. He directs even the devil and permits the devil and lets the devil go no further than he wants him to go. And in the end, we'll all look back in utter astonishment at how every little thing happened exactly the way God ordained it and decreed it. I'm thrilled with that statement of God's decree in our confession. I will not apologize for it. It's comfort to my soul. No threat to me. It's my security. You see, when you understand these doctrines properly, they will not be something that bug you. They'll be deep meat and drink for your troubled soul. I run back and I say, Lord, I don't understand this. How can these people do such a thing? How perverted can they get? How can they get government subsidy for this nonsense? The thing that's undermining the fabric of our culture, destroying us, they're promoting and we're paying for it. How can this be? 
and the Lord comforts me. I am the Lord of the lords, and I am the king of the kings, and the king's heart is in my hand, and I turn it whithersoever I will. So I go back to First Timothy 2, and I pray. And I say, Lord, you have their hearts in your hands. You turn them to do the right thing that will glorify you and save your people and hasten the day when your son will turn from heaven and deliver us from all this present evil world. He's king. And we don't take the time, but you could look in Acts chapter 2 as Peter preaches that great sermon on the day of Pentecost. And he describes to the Jews on that day, who are gathered from every nation under heaven, as it says in chapter 2, he describes to them how this Jesus of Nazareth, whom they'd nailed recently to a cross, God has made both Lord and Christ, and has seated him on the throne of David in fulfillment to prophecy from the Old Testament. He quotes from the Old Testament, he explains what those prophets meant, he quotes from David, and he shows that it was not David's flesh that God was talking about when David said, Thou wilt not let thy Holy One see corruption. It was Christ, and Christ was raised and seated. He sits on the throne as king in David's place, king over his Israel, king over his people, ruler over all creation. Unless he's going to be glorified as absolute Lord and absolute king, he's not going to be glorified as the Jesus of the Bible. He's not only prophet and priest and king, he's also priest, though. In the book of Zechariah, which we've already considered in chapter 6, we're told he shall be a priest upon his throne. He shall be a priest upon his throne. In 1 Timothy chapter 2, in the very center of that passage, it's helping the church know how to conduct itself when it comes together to pray. We are told that there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and man. The man, Christ Jesus. There is one God and one mediator. I want to read that to you because it's a, has a, it's so parallel and so supportive of this passage in John 17. It's so full. In 1 Timothy 2, verse 3 and following, after telling us we ought to pray for those in authority, rooted in the very confidence we've just enunciated, Verse 3 of the passage in 1 Timothy 2 tells us, This is good and acceptable in the sight of God, our Savior, who would have all men to be saved. That doesn't mean he's doing all he can to save them. It means it is his heart's sincere desire that they repent, that they know the truth, be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God, one mediator also between God and men, himself, Man, Christ Jesus, who gave himself a ransom for all, the testimony to be born in its own time. The testimony to be born in its own time. I thought that was interesting when I read it again yesterday. Not only is he the mediator, but there was a time set in earth's history where he as God's Savior would be testified the hour is come glorify thy son that thy son may also glorify thee the hour what hour the hour of the testimony in the fullness of the time the son of God came forth the testimony in its proper time now that which was hidden from the sons of men relatively in ages past has been revealed through the prophets and the apostles that the mystery of godliness in Christ, that Christ was seen of angels, 
glorified, preached on, believed on in the world, received up into glory. That's the essence of what we preach. That's the kernel of what we preach. That's the gospel. He sits as a priest, a go-between, between God and man, a mediator. One God. And one way to get to God. Through His Son, Jesus Christ. The one man who can get men to God. The one man worthy to be a priest to represent men. He could not represent us if He weren't a man. That's why He took flesh upon Himself. That's why it behooved him to come to take upon himself the seed of Abraham and to give help to Abraham's seed. That's why he became flesh and dwelt among us that he might be a faithful and merciful high priest. That's why it was necessary for the incarnation to take place. That's why it must be God incarnate. We cannot remove the virgin birth. We cannot remove the virgin conception. We cannot remove the miraculous. We must keep it and preserve it. It's vital to our faith because it must be God among us. And he must be a man. Don't deny that he came in the flesh. He's not God pretending to be man. He's man. The man, Christ Jesus, is our mediator. He, as a man of the Adamic race, goes before God representing Adam's lineage. More precisely, Abraham's lineage, the chosen. And he represents them faithfully. He's been with them. He's walked in not only in their shoes, but in their flesh. He took upon himself the likeness of sinful flesh that he might actually bear our sins and represent us. He's a priest. But he's not just a man. Taken from among men. He's God. He's a priest without blemish. He's a priest worthy. He's a priest sitting on the throne. Who sits on this throne? God's prophet, God's king, and God's priest who saves all he intends to save, saves them to the uttermost, and is the only way anybody that's going to be saved is going to be saved. All flesh, to get to God, must come through this one priest. Man have not the right to create a new priesthood, an alternate priesthood, any other way to God. I am the way, the Lord said. There is no other way to the Father. Dear brethren, some of us are living today quaking, and trembling at that testimony because we're surrounded by people that hate us for believing it. Think about it, meditate on it, and get it settled, and quit being ashamed of it. Outside of the Lord Jesus Christ, come from God, become a man, delivering his people from their sins by sacrifice on the cross of Calvary 2,000 years ago, there's no true religion, there's no eternal life, there's no rightness with God. Get it settled and it'll consume your life. There is no place for compromise at this point. There are no heathen going to go to God apart from Christ. You can debate with God as to how that came about, but I would debate with you as to how it came about that you who have heard still doubt it. While you argue about those you've never met who haven't heard, what about you who have heard? What will you do with Christ? You just say, well, I believed in it. Then why do you not live like it? You believe he's king, lawgiver, and has the power to punish every disobedience and you live as though he doesn't? You act as though he doesn't see everything you do and think. That you can sucker him the way you sucker us. You believe upon Christ the King? Why do you not obey his law? Gladly. He has a day he set apart to his own glory. 
for your good? Why do you continue to abominate that day and make excuses as to why you can and get by with it and make us the culprit and accuse us of being legalistic because we preach what the Bible preaches, that the Lord's day is the Lord's day and not ours? Why do you twist it and make it look as though we've come up with some new doctrine and we've added something to the law of Christ? If you believe on Christ as lawgiver and ruler and the punisher of those who violate his day, why don't you act like it? Quit making the heathen your excuse of argument against God and repent and humble yourself. That's the meaning of the glorifying of the Son, exalting him to the position of universal supremacy where all the creation may see his power as God. His perfect righteousness. But second, the means of glorifying the Son. How is the Father going to glorify the Son? We see what it means to glorify, but how is he going to do it? Well, there's three ways. Essentially, first, by suffering. Suffering. How is he going to glorify the Son? By suffering. But second, not only by suffering, but by victory over those sufferings. Not only is he going to suffer, he's going to triumph in suffering and over suffering. His death will end in triumph. His death is triumph. And third, growing out of that, his suffering and his victory in suffering result in the actual accomplishment of the salvation of all his people through his suffering. Not only does he personally overcome his sufferings and triumph in them, he triumphs in them by saving his people with them. I'll take you to the scriptures to show you how we come to those conclusions. First in Luke chapter 24. The means of glorifying the Son. How is he going to receive glory? How is God going to glorify his Son? By taking him through suffering. Luke 24, verse 25. The two men on the road to Emmaus, an account of which you're familiar. After the resurrection, these fellows are sad. Their countenance is drooping. The Lord joins them. They don't recognize him. Somehow he's hidden from their view. They don't see him. Well, how should they see him? They don't see the fact that he's risen. They don't understand a word of the prophets. If they don't believe Moses, why are they going to believe it when they see him in the flesh? Brethren, that's blindness. And unless God opens the eyes of the blind, they're not going to see. Oh, I wish I'd been there when Jesus was there. I wouldn't have treated him the way they are. Yes, you would. You're treating him that way today. And he's here. Well, I don't see him. That's not his problem. You're the blind one. You'd see him if you believed. You see, the Christian doesn't say, I'll believe it when I see it. The Christian understands that you'll see it when you believe it. As seeing him as invisible, Hebrews, in the chapter on faith, tells us. You want to see God? Believe his word. You'll see. And if you're not born from above, you'll never see the kingdom of God. You'll see God. Well, these guys didn't. And in chapter 24 of Luke, verse 25, the Lord, as they're discouraged and they're frustrated, he says to them, Oh, foolish man, and slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken. You see, their problem was not that Jesus had not manifested himself enough in the flesh to them. It's that they did not believe the prophets. They should have believed the prophets. Well, how can God expect us to believe what some man wrote in a book? 
or another set of books because the spiritual eye does believe God's prophets. The heart that knows God does know when God's men are teaching the truth and does receive the truth when it's preached. The heart that doesn't know God fights against the prophet's message. He that is of God heareth us, John says. He that is not of God heareth us not. That's why it's so vital that you be careful how you treat a man who's preaching the scripture. Because in your rejecting of a man preaching the scripture, you're rejecting the God of the scripture. How slow of heart to believe the things spoken by the prophets. That's your problem. You don't believe the Bible. Verse 26, he explains, Behooved it not the Christ. And you know the word Christ is that word for Messiah, which means the anointed mediator, prophet, priest, and king. That's what it means. The anointed ruler of Israel, the savior of his people. Behooved it not the Christ, to suffer these things and to enter into his glory. You see, in order to enter into his glory, he had to suffer these things. How was he going to enter his glory? He had to suffer. Brethren, he already had glory of God. What's this a charade by which he comes into the world, becomes flesh for a while and goes back to glory? What for? Do you understand what for? It is because his essential glory as the Son of God in the flesh is the glory of a Savior. He is to be glorified in giving eternal life to those who have no rights to it. That's his glory essentially as Jesus Christ to save. He became flesh not as a charade or to play a little short time game, not just to say a few good things or to be an example. He became man to save his people. And in that he's glorified. But how can he save them? He has to bear their sins. He has to bear their guilt. He has to bear their condemnation. He has to pay where they did not pay and cannot pay and would not pay. He has to satisfy the claims of God's righteous law and God's holy wrath against his people. In order to save them from God's wrath to come, he must take that wrath upon himself as their substitute. He has to become a man to represent them and the lamb and the priest to both to offer the sacrifice and to be the sacrifice so that when that sacrifice is offered, he as sinless is acceptable as a sacrifice and he as man truly represents his people when he makes that sacrifice so that God his Father in receiving his sacrifice for all our sins is able justly to say to us not condemned justified free from your sin and your guilt and your condemnation see why it's essential that in order to enter his glory as mediator he must suffer because if he doesn't suffer for our sins there is no mediatorial glory. He has not saved us from our sins. He cannot be our priest. He is not efficacious as a Savior. He's not gracious. He's done nothing but display himself a little and play a little game. The sufferings are utterly, absolutely essential to his glory. Not to his glory as deity, but to his glory as Redeemer, as Mediator, as God the Son saving God's people.
That's the glory that he's asking for. Glorify the Son in his saving work so that they may see God at work in the Son saving his people. Glorify the Son that he may glorify thee. Is that clear? To me it's beautiful. I hope I'm not muddying it. This is beautiful. The Son of God knowing that in order to be glorified he is to enter his glory through suffering. That's what he tells them in Luke. And then in verse 27 of that chapter he says, beginning from Moses, from Genesis, and from all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Oh, dear brethren, the whole Bible converges at this point. Not every verse in the scripture is explicitly teaching Christ. It's not all Jesus everywhere you look, but it's all headed for Jesus or coming from Jesus everywhere you look. It's all converging in the work of God to save his sinful people from their sins. The whole Bible is God's revelation of himself and his will and his saving glory. And you can find the first signification of it all the way in the third chapter of Genesis. The first explicit reference to it and the implications even before that. He opened the scriptures. He interpreted all the scriptures, Old Testament in this case, and they concerned him. Suffering to enter to his glory. Another passage, and don't take the time to turn, but I'll just recite it to you. Many of you are familiar with it in First Peter chapter 1, verses 11 and 12. Searching and speaking of the Old Testament prophets, what or what manner of time the Spirit of Christ which was in them did point to when he testified beforehand the sufferings of Christ and the glories that should follow them. The sufferings and the glories that should follow them. So Philippians 2, he became obedient unto the death of the cross, wherefore God has also highly exalted him. You see, this is not Paul's theology. It's not John's theology. It's not Peter's theology. It's Christ. It's truth. That from heaven he came, became a man, and suffered so that he could enter into his glory as an adequate and sufficient Savior. And don't you sit at the feet of him now with that view in mind and with the things that many of you had never heard about five years ago, eight years ago. Many of you who had been in church, because you were not acquainted with the old writers and the old truths, had no concept of the great radiant glory of Christ on the throne, having saved his people satisfactorily. And some of you struggled much with assurance, partly because you didn't see a finished and complete and adequate salvation in Jesus, because it was laid on you to do all the work. It was left to you with your free will to make sure you believed just right and believed enough and believed consistently and you kept on fighting and striving and you kept failing and looking to yourself because Jesus was not worthy of adequate confidence. Anybody that can try to save and can't save certainly cannot secure you in the storm. You don't usually cry to a sinking boat to come and rescue yours. 
You don't usually cry to your fellow swimmer who's going down for the third time to come and swim over and get you. You're usually looking for someone in a position to save. Doesn't it make you appreciate and love the Lord Jesus all the more? He, in order to be glorified, must suffer. It was the purpose of his coming to save his people from their sins. And only by his sufferings could he accomplish their salvation. He has authority to give eternal life, he says in this passage. But how does he give eternal life? He gives it by dying. You remember John 10? The thief comes not but for to steal and to kill and to destroy, but I am come that they might have life and that they might have it more abundantly. And in the next verse he says, the good shepherd lays his life down for the sheep. I've come to give them life. I've come to lay down my life so that I can give them life. He comes to suffer so we can have eternal life. It is the will of God who sent him. You see what he says there? That they may know thee, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom thou hast sent. This word sent is so central to John. Sent for what? To save his people. How do they see God? They see God by the manifestation of his Son whom he sent as he comes and fulfills the purpose for which he is sent, to suffer and save his people and enter his glory as their Savior. And in that suffering and in that glory, we see Christ exalted as Savior. And we're able to believe on him and look away from ourselves and trust him. And when we see him glorified that way, what do we do? We glorify God who sent him. Another place that this is so important, especially in our day of foolish, ignorant preaching. And brethren, I want to tell you, as one who confesses, he believes his preaching is manifestly ignorant. One of the greatest blights on our culture is the putting of men in the ministry who don't know the first thing about the Bible. We are covered with shepherds who don't know how to lead, lead God's people, who know, the le- who know less than Scripture than some of you Sunday school attenders. And they're in the pulpit, and people are waiting on them to teach them the truth, and they're muddled and confused, even sincere ones, many times. Some of us could testify to the past in our own lives, sincerely wrong. But I tell you, one of the things that we've come to preach is that when God sent his Son, he did not come into the world to save us from God. He wasn't a mean, angry father, and his Son, being sweet Jesus, came to deliver us from a mean, angry father. You examine a Roman Catholic psychology and you'll find pretty soon that for him the thought of addressing God directly is unthinkable. The whole idea of having communion with God the Father is out of his... He can't imagine it. Even directly speaking to Jesus is beyond him. He's got to go to his mommy. Maybe she can talk to her son with her motherly ways and get him to forgive our sins. Where do they get that? I don't think I'm caricaturing. Where do they get that? They get it from the false theology that somehow the God of the Bible, the old big God in the sky, the father of the Old Testament is mean, and baby Jesus comes to save us from him. That's not the picture of the Scripture. The Scripture, and John says it so plainly, God, the Father, so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whosoever believed in him should not perish but have everlasting life. It's not Jesus saving us from his Father. It is God saving us from our sins. But you wouldn't know that if you didn't see the biblical doctrine of the purpose for which God sent his son. If you'd had no concept of this idea of sending, 
who sent him his father. So you see what we do with God the Father when we see God the Son manifest in his saving glory? We love God the Father. We glorify him. He is a manifested in his saving of his Son. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. How does the Jesus feel about you? Well, Jesus understands. He's like me. He's one of us. He's, he's a friend. He's a sweet and tender friend. Well, that's the way the Father is. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Does Jesus love you? So does the Father. Because Jesus would never have been here had it not been for the Father loving you. Does Jesus want to save you? So does the Father. And you approach Jesus, so can you the Father. Equally. I and my Father are one. I am in my Father and my Father is in me. Have you been so long with me? And yes, you have to ask, show us the Father. You've seen the Father when you've seen Christ. You see all this? Glorify the Son so that when they see the full glory of the Son's saving efficacy, they may then glorify the Father. Well, we could go on and on, but we could stop at this point and simply summarize by a couple of applications. As he defines eternal life in this passage, you notice that he says that they may know thee, the only true God in Jesus Christ whom thou hast sent. I guess the theological application I want to make is this. You cannot know the only true God in any other way or context than in the knowing of his Son, Jesus Christ. You cannot believe upon God, the true God, if you do not believe upon God the Son as he is revealed and explained in the Bible. If the Bible says Jesus is the only way to God, you do not believe in God if you do not believe that. If the Bible says that Jesus is the uniquely born Son of God, uniquely begotten, and you don't like that, you're not believing the God of the Bible, you have not the right or the luxury under truth in God to say, I believe in God, but I don't believe Jesus is God. You cannot have it those two ways. You must take Christ as he is, or you don't have God. Dear friends, the first day of every week is the Lord's day. It is the day on which Jesus rose from the dead. It is the day in which the Father crowned him with glory. It is the day on which he sent his Spirit to the church in living proof that he sits on the throne. It is the day of his exaltation and worship. It is the day that we set aside to honor him. My dear friends, for you to reject that day or a portion of that day for anything you prefer to do than to honor and please and serve and glorify and worship him, unless it is essential and you can't avoid it, or a work of mercy which would glorify him and honor him, or an act of piety by which you honor him, you are lying when you say you believe upon him, love him, serve him, and believe in God. You don't like coming to church on Sundays whenever they meet? Why not? You figure out, why not? You don't like how many times they've chosen to meet? What's the problem? How much scripture can you stomach? How many hymns can you endure? 
How many Christian faces can you fellowship with until you're sick of it? What's the problem here? What's your problem? It's not the law of Christ. It's your own rotten heart. You can't have the God of the Bible, the only true God, unless you love his only Son the way he's presented in the Bible. But on the other hand, you cannot have God the Son apart from God the Father. It can't be just me and Jesus with our own little deal going here apart from the high respect and honor that's due God as Father. It can't be just a little salvation from a few little sins. If I pray my little prayer and now Jesus and I have our own private little religion, that's, it's got to be more than that. If you've received Christ, you've received all that God is and all that God says and all his grandeur and authority and all of his grace and love as a holy father and as a loving and gracious father. Now just ask this question. Are you this morning in a position that you confidently can say, I myself have comprehended who Jesus Christ is, why he came, and I love him for it. I believe upon him as my Savior. I trust in him as my salvation. I look to no other. I rest in him, and I long more than anything else in this world to serve him, please him, and follow him wherever he goes. Are you able confidently to say that? If you can say that confidently this morning, I can say to you, you have eternal life. If you cannot say that, then you're, out, you're outside of eternal life. You're dead in your sins and you need to repent and run to Christ or you will perish in your sins. Young or old, children, seasoned veterans, church members, church visitors, young people, parents and children, men and women, if you haven't come to grips with the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, if you haven't gladly bowed to his authority as God and lawgiver, if there's a portion of his law you don't like and don't intend to obey and you're still hedging and backing off, you have not been saved and you do not have eternal life dwelling within you. And you must repent of that sin and bow to Christ and come to Christ or you will perish in your sin. However, if you will come to Christ, to Christ, not to a church, not to me, not to a set of rules, but to Christ, and all the package that comes with him. If you come to Christ, you'll find eternal life. He that lives and believes in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. He shall never die, but is passed from death unto life. Rivers of living water shall flow up out of his inward parts. Believe upon Christ. He will give you the Spirit. And when he gives you the Spirit, the rest of us will see what's changed. And your life will be different. And everybody will know it. And you'll know it. Without him, there's no life. With him, there's eternal life. You haven't believed God if you're not acting out what eternal life shows. If your attitude is against a Christian, ask yourself why you're mad at a Christian. What's your problem with God's children? What about God's children turns you off? What about the image of God bothers you? You don't like the church? What about the bride of Christ with whom you're going to live forever in heaven bothers you? You don't like the law of God? What about the law of God that bugs you? What is it that reflects that you may be deceiving yourself to claim you have eternal life?
while you're not living in the light of it. May God help us to bow to his Son, embrace his Son, believe upon his Son, and thereby glorify his Son to the glory of God the Father. Let us bow together. Our Father, we thank you that you did give to your people a measure of help in hearing, that you did grant grace in diligence, and we pray that you would honor it. O Lord, these things are both familiar to us and they transcend our comprehension. There are things with which we are acquainted and which we love, and yet we so little understand them. And we feel the weight of them so little because of our hard hearts. O God, soften our hearts. Open our eyes and interpret to us in all the scriptures the things concerning your Son, that we may believe upon him, be delivered from our sins and the wrath to come, and may glorify you in our lives. Make our goal the same as Christ, that you, our Father, may be glorified through us. Lord, we cry to you in this day in which men look so poorly and sinfully upon you, that you would glorify your son's name again in this world. We would pray that in this city where so much pagan religion and false religion and deception has been practiced and where the fruits of such religion are ample evidence all around us of the falsehood of that, that you would establish a light and a glory of Christ in this place. We would pray, O Lord, that you would restore those years that the locusts have eaten We would pray, our Father, that the Lord Jesus would be feared and loved and honored by an increasing number of saints, that that those souls of men who blaspheme him today may soon be turned to worship him. Lord, grant extreme numbers of trophies to the grace of your Son. Add them to your church. Magnify your name. Glorify your saving power. We ask this in this morning that you also would search the hearts of every one of us And if there are those in our midst, as no doubt there are, who are strangers to life, that you by your Son would save them and thereby get glory. Do hear our prayer, O Lord, not because we deserve these answers, but for your Son's sake. For we ask it in his name, in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.